0: We're going to be talking through our series, Handle with Care. So far, we've talked about time and talent. And now we're going to spend this week and next Sunday talking about treasure. How do we handle our treasure with care? How do we steward the financial blessings that God has given us? Now, if you don't know me, uh, my wife and I have three little girls. And uh, I, I, I used to always tell people, life with three girls is a life of dolls, Disney, and drama. Dolls, Disney, And drama. And the truth is, as they get closer to the teenage years, it's a little less dolls and Disney, and it's a little more. Drama, yeah. So it's kind of making me miss Dolls and Disneys. But I, I remember, uh, I think I might have shared this before, but I remember being at Walt Disney World with my girls, and they were so excited. The ride that they wanted to go on the most was the Little Mermaid ride. They were very, very excited about the Little Mermaid, and uh, we took them on the ride. And, 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 you know, kids, they don't get tired of things, so they went on the ride over and over and over. And I was thinking li- a little bit later about that movie, The Little Mermaid, and specifically the main character, Ariel. Now, these little Disney princesses, there are uh, wonderful things about them, like uh, Ariel in particular, she's independent, she's strong, she knows what she wants, she, she goes for things. But then if you really think about the story, there's things about her that I don't want my daughters to ever do, like she blatantly disobeys her dad. Like, so right there, that's a negative, right? She, she chases after a boy. She, she, she gives her one God-given gift away, her voice is singing, so that she can chase after this boy. And then through a series of bad decisions, she ends up bringing her family and really her entire world to the brink of destruction. I'm like, I don't want my girls to be anything. They're never watching that movie ever again. But one of the things is we were kind of, because the songs are so wonderful, and one of the songs where she sings about wanting to be a place of the world of human, humans, there's a line in there, and it goes like this. And many of you could sing it out loud right now. She says, I've got gadgets and gizmos aplenty. I've got who's-its and what's-its galore. You want thingamabobs? I've got 20. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. And I'm thinking, you have 20 thingamabobs. I mean, that sounds pretty amazing. Like, how can you possibly want more? And one of the things that I think we see in this little princess's uh, unredeemed, unregenerate heart uh, is that she's she's a little greedy. She's a little greedy. I mean, she's so greedy that she writes songs about it and sings about how she's got everything, but it's not enough. She wants more. And so this morning, we're going to talk about greed. Now, greed might seem like a strange topic on Thanksgiving Sunday, but what we're gonna see is that greed is one of the greatest enemies of being a thankful person. If you want to be a thankful person, you can't simultaneously be greedy. Greed will steal gratitude from your heart. So it's a very timely thing to talk about on Thanksgiving Sunday. We're going to look in Luke chapter 12 at Jesus teaching the crowd. And what we're going to see is that Jesus gives them a teaching and then he tells them a story. And beginning in verse 13, I'm reading to you from the ESV. Here's what it says. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, teacher. "'Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me.' But he said to him, "'Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you?' And he said to them, "'Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, "'which is greed, "'for one's life does not consist "'in the abundance of his possessions.' And then he told him a parable, this is a story, saying, "'The land of a rich man produced plentifully.' And he thought to himself, "'What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops?' And he said, oh, I'll do this. I'm going to tear down my barns, and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself himself and is not rich toward God. In this important passage Jesus gives us a warning and he tells us a story. Well, let's look at the warning first because the warning reveals to our hearts something about the nature of greed. What is greed? And here's a definition of greed. Greed is a controlling desire for or an overdependence on money and material things. Look at this. Greed is a controlling desire for, it's a desire that controls us, or it's an over-dependence on money and material things. So greed is not a desire for money. It's not a dependence upon material things. It's a controlling desire. So you're not greedy just because you may have some desire to have financial security and the ability to provide for your family. But when that desire is out of order, when it's an over-desire, it has your heart. And it can become greed. Now, Jesus says in this translation, he says, take care. And in other translations, he says this, watch out, watch out. Now, when someone tells you to watch out for something, what do they think? They think you're not going to what? See it coming. You're not going to see it. This Friday morning, when you got up and you looked out your windows, no one had to say, watch out for the snow. Right, There is no way you were going to miss it. It was everywhere. When something is super obvious, no one tells you to watch out for it. People only say watch out for something when they think you might miss it. And so when Jesus says watch out here, he's saying something to us. He's saying that you're gonna miss this this is one of those things that you're not gonna think is an issue for you even when it is. And it should say something to us that Jesus thinks we won't see greed coming our way. He's concerned. So this is a big deal. This is maybe a bigger deal than we think. And then Jesus says, watch out. And then he says, be on guard, be on guard. Now, how many of you watch boxing, but one of the first rules of boxing is what? always keep your always keep your hands up why because you always have to guard your face you always have to guard your chin i remember i didn't watch real boxing until after i had seen the movies the rocky movies how many of you know the rocky movies is not real boxing I remember watching the Rocky movies and thinking, boxing is amazing. They just like stand there with their hands by their sides and take turns pounding each other in the face. And then I went and ro- watched real boxing. I'm like, these guys are cowards. Like, this is like, this is the most boring sport in the world. Why do they got their hands up by their chins protecting themselves. But that's what it means to be on guard. And when Jesus says be on guard, the implication here is this, that greed is always ready to attack and steal from us at all times and in all ways. Jesus says, watch out. Now, what does greed steal from us? Greed steals joy from us, right? If you're a greedy person, you can't really have joy because you're always looking around at what you don't have that you think could bring you joy. Greed steals peace from you because your heart's not at peace when you're looking around at all the other things that you think would bring you peace. So greed steals from us. Jesus doesn't say, or yeah, Jesus doesn't say, watch out or be on guard for adultery. He doesn't say watch out, be on guard for murder. He doesn't say watch out, be on guard for stealing, why? Because we know if we're doing those things. Greed is so much sneakier than that. And here's how sneaky greed is. The more you're able to see it around you, the less likely you are to see it in you. The more you are able to see it and identify it around you, the less likely you are to see it in you. In other words, I heard Tim Keller say it this way, if you know just one person who you are convinced is more greedy than you, you're convinced it's not a problem for you. That's the power of greed. All you have to do is look around at your neighbor, look around at your family member, and be like, man, they're really greedy. They're really controlled by money. Thank God I'm not like them. Greed's very sneaky. Here's another way that greed is very sneaky. You might think, how could I be greedy? I'm not rich. I don't have a lot of stuff. We tend to think of the greedy as always being the rich. That's not fair. People who are wealthy, people who have worked hard, people who have money, they're not necessarily greedy. They may just be blessed. They may just have had this opportunity. But if you look at rich people and you automatically judge them and assume things about them, guard your heart and pay attention to the way you look at people who have more money than you. If you have any sort of initial assumptions about people who have money or people who don't have money, well, they must be lazy they didn't work hard. That's their fault, right? Anytime you jump to a conclusion about somebody who has more money or less money than you without actually knowing that person, it's actually an indicator that greed has some power over your heart. And what all of this means, I believe, is that greed is so sneaky because greed has the power to blind you to itself. Greed has the power to blind you to greed. And greed has the ability to distort the way you see everything the way you see everything. Let me give you a few examples. If there's greed at work in your heart, you're going to begin to see things, possessions, as things that can define you, things that can set you apart, things that can make you superior to others. Someday when I can afford to drive that car around, someday when I can live in that neighborhood, when I can eat at that restaurant, when I can wear those clothes, someday then you begin to see things as, as things that will define you and make you superior to others or equal to others. It'll change the way that you look at people if you're greedy. You'll see people as pawns that you can use to get what you want or as obstacles between you and what you most want. You'll see work the wrong way. You'll see work as your master, as your savior, as your great hope. Or you'll see work simply as a means to an end, something you have to do in order to get more money instead of seeing work as worship. And you'll begin to see money. Greed obviously distorts the way you see not just things, not just people, right, and, and, and not just work, but greed obviously distorts the way you see money. And here's what happens when greed is at work in our hearts. We begin to see money in one of two ways, either as our source of security or as our source of significance. And so for some people, money is a source of significance. It's It's like I mentioned earlier, where they can afford to live, where they can afford to eat, what social circles they're in. Those things can easily become how we know we matter and how we know that we're better than other people. In preparation for this week's message, I read an opinion piece in the New York Times. This is a few years old by a man named Sam Polk. You've probably not heard of him before, but Sam Polk, he's not famous, but he was a former hedge fund trader. If anybody knows what that means, you can tell me after service. But he he was doing something with numbers and money and stuff, and he was very, very wealthy. He worked on Wall Street. In this article, he, he talked about greed. And I'm going to, for the rest of this message, I'm going to quote him every now and then, and I want you to hear what he says. I don't know that he's a believer, but I find his insights to be very significant. He said this. Now, we're talking about money is some people's significance. He said, the satisfaction that I got from getting, being rich, he was very, very, very wealthy, very successful. The satisfaction I found from, from being wealthy wasn't actually about the money. It wasn't just about the money. He said it was about the power the power, because of how smart I seemed and how successful I seemed. And because I was so smart and so successful, it was always someone else's job to make me happy. So he was leveraging his money for power. And when he felt powerful, what he meant was like he could get, into, he could get a reservation at any restaurant in New York City. He could get tickets, front row tickets to any game. And he loved that idea that people basically existed to make him happy because he had so much power, because he had so much Money. And for some people, money is our source of significance. And again, you don't have to be wealthy for this to be an issue for you. You can have a little bit of money, and it can still be your source of significance. Secondly, for some people, money is a source of security. These are savers, not spenders, right? These are people who sock it all away instead of giving it away. They're looking to their money. They're looking to their bank account. And because they can see the amount of money in their bank account, it makes their heart have peace. And it steadies them through storms of life. They're looking to their money to give them a sense of security. And they're saying, I can look out at the world and no matter what happens today, I'm secure because I have this amount of money. But money can't give you that. And you know that. You always need more. And Sam Polk, he goes on to say this. He says, even when I was most successful, still, I was nagged by envy. He said, on a trading desk, everyone sits together. The interns and the managing directors and the brokers. He said, "When the guy sitting next to you makes ten million dollars a year, then your one million or two million doesn't seem so sweet, and you're envious of the person next to you." And he said this. He said, "In my last year that I worked on Wall Street, this is going to blow some of your minds. In my, last street, in my last year that I worked on Wall Street, my bonus, my bonus was $3.6 million." And he says this, and I was angry. I was angry because it wasn't big enough. I deserved more. He said, I was 30 years old. I had no children to raise, no debts to pay, no, philosoph- uh, no goals in mind. I-, I wanted more money for exactly the same reason an alcohol wants another drink. I was addicted. You see, here, that money can't actually give you significance or security. All it gives you is sort of a path to try and get more. And it's never enough. You know, the, the, show that, one of the shows that my family and I like to watch is Shark Tank. And it's a show where the different entrepreneurs and people with business ideas, they, they come in front of these, these wealthy investors and they pitch their ideas. And they, and one of the guys is a guy named Mr. Wonderful and Kevin O'Leary. He usually sits in the middle seat and he's kind of a mean guy, but I, I like him. And, uh, I was, I was, uh, I was reading an interview with him one time and he said this. He said, money equals freedom. He said, if you have money, you'll always be free. But what's interesting is that almost a day after I read that article, I watched an episode of Shark Tank. And on that episode, he said to one of the investors, he said, do you know why I wake up every morning? He said, I wake up every morning so that I can go to bed richer than I woke up. And when he put those two quotes next to each other, you realize he's self-deceived. He says money equals freedom. But does he sound free? He's not free. He just has a different master. He's enslaved. He's given his heart to whatever it is that he thinks money will bring to him and so Jesus gives us this warning he says watch out be on guard you won't see greed coming in fact if you this morning about 10 minutes ago when I said we're talking about greed this morning if you thought to yourself this one's not for me it probably is that's how greed works so Jesus gives us a warning but he also tells us a story now the story we learn two things here about our nature and about the nature of greed. And the two things that we learn are this. Number one, when you are filled with greed, even the good things of life will become a source of anxiety for you. When you're filled with greed, even the good things of life become a source of anxiety. Did you notice this man, do you remember this, I don't know, it was a little while ago, but this story, the man who was wealthy, and he says, what am I gonna do with all my crops? I've, I've, had, I've had such a successful year. I've have, I have so much wealth, I don't even know where to put it all. And the man is anxious about even the good things of his life. Even the blessings in his life, he's worried about. Having too many crops is actually a good problem, but for him, it makes him anxious. And here's what I want you to notice. What should have been a blessing has become a burden, and greed will do that to you. Greed will not allow you to see what God has given you as a blessing. You will see it as a burden because you'll think, what will I do with all this? I just, I need more. I need more. In the very next verse, Jesus says, therefore, be anxious about nothing. The ver- we didn't get there, but he says it right after this. Be anxious about nothing. What do your worries tell you about your priorities? Back to Sam Polk's article, he said this. He said, I recently got an email from a hedge fund trader who said that even though he was making millions of dollars every year, he felt trapped and empty, but he couldn't summon, he couldn't summon the courage to leave. Even the best things of life, or a source of anxiety for him. But the other thing we learn in this story is that not only do the best things of life or the good things of life become a source of anxiety, but the good things of life can become a source of identity, especially the good things of life will become. So when there's greed in your heart, here's, the, here's a big idea for this morning. When there's greed in your heart, the good things of life will either be a source of anxiety for you or a source of identity for you. Either, probably both, back and forth, anxiety and identity. Four chapters later in Luke, we're not going to read it right now. In Luke 16, you can read it later. Jesus tells another story about a rich man and Lazarus. And if you're familiar with the story, they both die. The rich man, uh, the, Lazarus goes to heaven, Abraham's bosom. The, the rich man goes to hell. I'm, I'm not going to recount the whole story, but here's what's very interesting about this story that Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus. We often don't realize it's a story because it uses a real person's name. Maybe you even thought, that was a real story, but it's a story that, it's a parable. It's a story Jesus told. Now, what's, what's unique about this parable, in all of Jesus' stories, Jesus told lots and lots of stories, it's the only story where Jesus gave a character a name, the rich man and Lazarus. And commentators say that Jesus was trying to send a message about how wealth, when it's the center of your life, it will become your identity. And so the rich man didn't have a name because he wasn't anything more than his possessions. He had no sense of self outside of his money. He had no sense of identity outside of his success and his wealth. And so while Lazarus had a name and his name was known, the rich man, both here on earth and in eternity, his only identity was being a rich man. In Soren Kierkegaard, when he talks about sin, he says that sin is building your identity on anything other than God. Sin is building your identity on anything other than God. And so when we look at the good things and we're greedy for the good things and it becomes a source of identity, we build our identity on the things that we have, on our finances, on our possessions, and we become like those things. The psalmist in Psalm 135, 18 said this, he said, the people who make idols become like those idols. So do all who trust in them. Jared talked very powerfully about this at the end of his message last week. That the things that we look to, the things that we place our hopes in, the things that we trust in, those things are—they're are, more than just um, uh, material possessions. It's more than just money. It's become your functional savior. It's become your false god. It's a thing that you're looking to for salvation for salvation and becoming like them means that you lose your true self as you worship them. They become your identity. You don't know who you are apart from it. And when your complete se- when your sense of self is completely wrapped up in it, what will happen is that when you lose it, it will result in extreme emotions because your identity is at risk. So when people who have built their identity upon their stuff, when they lose their stuff, they're not just grieving the stuff. They're grieving this, the fact that they've lost themselves. That's how powerful this greed is. That's how powerful it is when we say things like, if I have that, then I'll have importance and value. But if I don't have that, or God forbid I ever lose that, then who am I? I'm nothing. It's not just money, is it? You hear this with athletes when they have to retire. They lose their sense of who they are because they say, if I'm not that, then what possibly am I? So why is greed such an enemy of generosity and giving? And we're going to close with a couple thoughts here. Greed is an enemy of generosity and giving because whatever your soul treasures, whatever your soul craves and covets most, you will pay any price to get. You'll do anything to get it. It'll be your precious. Sam Polk said this. I want to read one more time from his article. He said, this is after he kind of had his, uh, his, his eye-opening moment when he saw what greed was doing to him. He said, from that moment on, I started to see Wall Street with new eyes. I noticed the anger That traders directed at the government For limiting bonuses after the crash I heard the fury in their voices At the mention of higher taxes These traders despised anything or anyone That threatened their bonuses Ever see what a drug addict is like When he's used up his junk He'll do anything Walk 20 miles in the snow Rob a grandma to get a fix Wall Street was like that You'll do anything to get it But what will it really ever do for you What can its presence provide for you that its absence can't just as easily take away. I remember hearing one other thing from Mr. Wonderful. He was talking to one of the entrepreneurs and they were beginning to cry. You know, sometimes they cry when they present. And uh, he said to them, he said, stop, stop, stop. It wasn't a sad story. They were just crying because they weren't going to get an uh, a investor. And Mr. Wonderful gave the investor this advice. He said, don't cry for your money. It'll never cry for you. And it's the same thing with everything in our lives that we give our hearts to that isn't Jesus. You're gonna cry for that thing. You're gonna give your life for that thing. You're gonna lose your purpose and your peace and your way over that thing. It's never gonna do that for you. It will not do that in return for you. And here's how we overcome greed, ready? We realize something. We realize that every treasure but Jesus will insist that you die to purchase it. But Jesus is the one treasure who died to purchase you. That's the truth that we rehearse in our minds, in our hearts. In this Christmas season, we go to the store and we see just greed on the shelves and greed on our television screens. And there's all sorts of ways to direct our materialism and our need for more money. Continually remind your heart, Jesus is the only, every other treasure that you pursue in life will insist that you die to purchase it. But Jesus is the one treasure who died to purchase you. And we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9, the apostle Paul says, you know you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might be made rich. You don't need the riches of what this world has to offer, because you've experienced the riches of God's grace, and God's mercy. How was that possible? Because Jesus, who lacked for nothing, gave up everything to come to earth. He became poor so that we might experience experience the riches of God's grace and mercy. And that's how we overcome greed. We look at Jesus and we see that he gave up the riches of heaven to gain us, to make you his treasure and to gain you as his treasure. But he also did it to secure something for you, heaven, and to secure a relationship with the Father. And so we ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, help me to find Jesus to be more beautiful than stuff. Help me not to look to the things I can buy off a shelf to fill my heart up with significance and value. Help me to see what Jesus has done for me. He makes me significant because of his work on the cross on my behalf. And help me not to to hoard all my money to myself, stingy and unwilling to open up my heart and open up my hands. Help me to believe in the deepest place of my heart that Jesus secures for me everything that I need. And as that truth of God's grace finds its way into your life here's what it will do it'll open up your heart and open up your hands wherever you see an open hand you know there's an open heart let me close with just a real practical thought on giving. Because maybe you're, you're, you're thinking, yes, generosity is good, but how do I give? And what does giving look like? Maybe you're new to the church and you don't know how we give and what that looks like. I, I want to tell you real quick, and then we're going to pray and close, uh, three ways that we give at Trinity. Three ways that you can give and exercise your generosity when it comes to your treasure. There's lots of ways you can give your time. We talked about that two weeks ago. There's lots of ways you can give your talent. But there's some ways you can give your treasure. And I know sometimes, especially if you're visiting, you're like, this is exactly what I thought church was going to be like. (laughs) They're talking about money. Like, this is what I tell everybody. This is a little bit of a unique message. We don't talk about money every week. But money can't be ignored because it holds strings to our hearts. And the heart is what matters most, right? It's irresponsible if we don't talk about money ever because it's so important in our lives and because Jesus talked about it so much. So how do we give? There's really three ways that we give, and I want to put this up on the screen for you and explain it to you. We give regular, there's regular giving, there's directed giving, and there's what we might call one-time giving. So let me just break this down for you. Regular giving is that every week we're going to pass the plates, and some of you give in person, some of you give online. Our online giving has doubled since the beginning of the year, so I joked about this a few weeks ago. Don't judge somebody because they don't ever give. They might be giving online. One of my friends who gives online said, hey, you should give us a blank slip that says we give online so we can put it in the offering plate when it passes by so that so that nobody judge, so that they know that we're, we're giving. But regular giving. Now, what is regular giving? I want to say something about the tithe. So the tithe is 10% of your income directed into the kingdom of God, right? Given out of our hands into God's hands. And there's a lot of um, debate on the topic of the tithe, and I just want to weigh in. Can I do that just for a minute? So the tithe is 10% of your giving. And here's what, we, here's what I believe about the tithe. The tithe, first off, it was before the law. If you look at Abraham who tithed to Melchizedek, and you look at Jacob who tithed, because tithe, some people say tithing was only in the Old Testament law, so it doesn't apply to us today. But tithing was in the Mosaic covenant. It was in the law, but it was before the law. Well, what does that mean? It means that Abraham and Jacob didn't need to be instructed to tithe. They didn't need to be commanded to tithe. Why? Because when your heart's been touched by the grace of God, it seems like from scripture, the tithe is a natural response. It's a starting place, okay? So it was before the law. Secondly, it's certainly in the law, and we don't have to debate that this morning. It's clearly in the law, and it's also in Malachi as a reminder of giving. And it's a powerful passage in Malachi where God tells his people, as you give, test me in this, right? I'll pour out a blessing on you. Now, that's not the motivation for why we give, but he's teaching a kingdom principle. So it's before the law, it's in the law, and the third thing I wanna say about the tithe is this, it's good for us. It's good for us. And I know some of you probably thought I was gonna say, it's in the New Testament, and it's after the law. And here's what I wanna say about that. Jesus definitely references the tithe in his teaching, but many people point out, that, of course, was before the work of the cross. You don't see the tithe explicitly taught anywhere, in the New Testament. And so many people say, well, because the tithe isn't taught in the New Testament, it's only for people in the Old Testament times, we don't have to worry about the tithe anymore. And here's what I would say I, we don't even need to have that argument. You know why? Because if your heart's been touched by the grace of God, the tithe is such a small percentage. It's just the starting point. I was thinking about this. You know, when, when I first met my wife, Erin, and, and I began to fall in love with her and all the things about her that I loved, right? It, Oh, how wonderful she was, how, how sweet she was. She should be in here. She's in the nursery. She's missing this. This is, this is, this is, this is wasted. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, how wonderful she is, how sweet she is, how kind she is. Now, 12 years later, we just celebrated 12 years. When I think of the past 12 years, all the things I've walked through with her, Having watching her give birth to three children, watching how she cares for our kids, how she cares for our youngest with special needs, how she's walked with our family through seasons of grief. Do you think that I I love her less now than I did then? On this side of all of that, I love her more, and I want to be more generous. Right now, where who should be more generous? People on that side of the cross, or the people on this side of the cross? People on that side of the cross. They, they saw in part, but they didn't see in full. But now we see in full. So my point here is if you're hung up on the tithe, let's not even, I don't care. I understand. I agree with you. It's not explicitly taught in the New Testament. You cannot teach it as an explicit instruction from the New Testament. It's implicit in Jesus, but it's not explicit. However, don't get hung up on that because that's just the starting point for people to give. And that's how we give regularly. So if you're wondering, how do I give? You give regularly. Many give the tithe. Secondly, there's directed giving. And directed giving is maybe like an offering. It's above and beyond the tithe. So you give the tithe, you pay the tithe, and then you say, above and beyond that, I wanna give to support missions, maybe like the Maddox, or I wanna support a building project or something that's happening at the church. That's directed giving. And just so you know, if you ever write on your envelope that this giving needs to go to the children's ministry or to the Maddox, we are legally bound to give it to them. That's called a designated offering. We cannot use that for any other purpose, okay? So you are allowed to do so. If you wanted to give us money just to use for people who are in need for benevolence and you market that way, it will get set aside for that purpose and spent that way. But you understand now why directed giving has to be above and beyond regular giving because if everybody's using their regular giving to tell us how to use it, we may not be able to pay our bills, right? Right? If everybody's saying, use my money for this, we legally have to use it that way. So directed giving is above and beyond the regular giving. And then lastly, there's the one-time giving. And maybe this is you get a big tax return, you get an inheritance, you have an insurance payout or something, and you just say, you know what? I don't think you're, I don't think again that you're bound to tithe on that, but you say, because of God's generosity towards me, I'm gonna be a generous person. I'm gonna invest in the kingdom, and I wanna give a percentage of that, and then maybe as a large one time gift. And of course, we give thanks to God for all of these types of giving. Here's how we want you to give at Trinity, and then I'll pray. Three ways willingly, cheerfully, and sacrificially. So don't get hung up. Don't get hung up on numbers and percentages. Ask yourself this Am I giving willingly? Because some people are giving the tithe, but they're not giving willingly. It's not honoring God. Am I giving willingly? Am I giving cheerfully? And am I giving sacrificially? Is it actually costing me something to be a giver? Is my lifestyle somehow changed and impeded because of the generosity that I'm directing towards God, people and towards his kingdom? When greed encounters grace, the result is always generosity. Let's close, close in prayer together.